I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Anindita Ghosh about her contemporary novel, The Illuminated. Anindita is a writer and journalist from Mumbai. She was the editor of the award-winning Saturday magazine supplement, Mint Lounge, and before that, the features director of Vogue India. Anindita has a master's degree in arts and culture journalism from Columbia University, and a master's degree in linguistics from the University of Mumbai. The Illuminated was published in India in 2021, but Head of Zeus acquired it for publication in 2023, so of course I wanted to hear how that happened. We also discuss the difficulty of moving past a very polished, beloved first chapter, a brilliant technique involving the senses which an indeter employed to make her character's chapters distinct, and an amazing story about being bold and brave as a debut author and contacting your writing heroes. But first, here's an editor with an excerpt from The Illuminated. The afternoon they had been unable to reach her, she was in the cafe. She was still sitting on the wooden bench in the balcony with her back to the room. She was staring at her glass, watching the last of her green juice make rivulets inside it when Tashi came up behind her. The mountains haven't changed you yet, he said. Isn't it serene? Did you know Dholadhar means the white range? He didn't look at her. His gaze was fixed on the snow-capped peaks beyond earth movers that looked like Lego dinosaurs. It wasn't a question. He wasn't expecting a reply. It was said to draw a look of demure appreciation that said, Wah, wah, what wonderful insight. Tara had imagined the ponytailed cafe owner, he with his free Tibet meetings and hacking marathons and posters for social media vigilantism, to have a better opening after all these weeks. So far, their only exchanges had been about the merits of the juice of the day. She had gathered that he agented emerging Tibetan artists. There were landscape photographs with price tags on the cafe walls, and there was an installation in the center of the room, a cannon fashioned with used monk robes. A plaque mentioned all the places it had been exhibited in. Male birds of paradise rehearse and refine their mating dance through their lives. Bower birds make clearings on the forest floor and prepare soft beds, even tossing in a bauble or two by way of home decor. Out in the Pisang kingdom, the white-spotted pufferfish makes rangoli patterns in the sand. The males in the animal kingdom make elaborate shows of beauty and elegance, color and sound, and most importantly, their housekeeping skills. Also, their likeness may live forever. The human male gets away with so little. Hi, Anindita. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Illuminated. I'm, I'm really happy to be with you here today, Chloe. This is the first conversation around uh, the book for the UK release, so it's a special one for me. 
Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you on. I'm really interested as well. We'll talk a little bit later about your book came out in India in 2021. So you've had a couple of years of being a debut in India and now you're branching out into the UK. So it's very exciting. Can you introduce your novel, The Illuminated, for us and tell us what it's about? Sure. So, you know, Chloe, I love to hear other people's summary of the novel because uh, a book is so much about um, who the reader is and where their head is at the moment. Um, So that's interesting for me. But for me, The Illuminated is essentially a novel about a mother and daughter who are on um, a journey to find their own identity after the death of this pivotal male figure in their life. Uh, So the mother and daughter are um, Shashi and Tara, and they are the the titular figures. They are the illuminated. And, um, you know, a young reader that I met recently uh, used this word to describe my novel. She said it's about microaggressions, and I I feel that fits it really well. Um, For me, uh, The Illuminated is not a novel about the very obvious uh, violence against women. It's not about you know, the more uh, uh, visible forms of patriarchy. There's no there's no domestic abuse. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, a rape as, as we think of it. But it's about these minor humiliations. It's, it's just about the way that men take up all the air in a room. And, um, and, and the women, uh, Shashi and Tara, are also relatively privileged characters in the scheme of, you know, privilege in India. So I was really interested in, in you know, finding these kind of minor ways in which uh, patriarchy has this kind of insidious hold on women's lives and their futures. Yeah, both your characters are very much pushing or trying to push against people's expectations of them and Tara in an academic setting and Shashi uh, obviously she's just lost her husband and there's very much around her an expectation of how she should behave as a grieving widow I wondered then where whether the novel started because it is very character focused whether your story started with these two characters where did that kind of early inspiration or idea come from? You know, I I actually remember the precise day and the precise moment, so I can kind of answer that question really well for you. Um, Stories for me begin with a visual um, or an emotional charge. Uh, So for me, I had this visual of a woman, uh, a middle-aged woman who who wanted comfort. Uh, She was uh, grieving something. uh, I didn't know what at the time. And she wanted a cup of tea. And, uh, you know, for me, it was kind of this woman uh, just looking for this warm cup of tea, hot cup of tea for a whole day, but these things keep coming in the way. And I think over time, this this idea of uh, the fact that she's lost her husband or who she is, their background, the daughter, all of that kind of filled in later but I I, but I think that initial emotional charge of this woman wanting something and the world expecting her to want something else I think in a way that is the you know that's the core of the book it's about what women really want and what the world expects them to want and it's about private comfort versus a public uh, show uh, you know Um, so that really was a, a very kind of strong emotional charge that started it off. And I feel that kind of ran through as I was uh, fleshing the book out and filling in, uh, yeah, filling in plot and character. Yeah. Because your novel started life actually as a short story, didn't it? So how did you decide to then transform it into a novel? How did you kind of see that it had bigger potential? Well, I hoped it had bigger potential, (laughs) for for sure. But it's just because this this idea, this visual, this this charge, uh, like like I see it, was so strong for me. I was kind of stuck, I think, at least for a couple of years, just on this first chapter. What is the first chapter of the Illuminated? And I wrote it as a short story, and uh, I I sent it to some people that I knew who were you know editors or people in publishing here. I sent it to a couple of literary magazines as well, who you often don't hear back from. But um, interestingly, uh, the two places, the two magazines I sent it to, they did write back, you know, not officially, not saying you're 
submission is accepted, but the editors wrote back and kind of said, you know, this is really good, but it's not a short story. <laughs> I, I think I it was always the first chapter of a novel and I was kind of, you know, trying to farm it off as a short story because you want to write fiction, you want to get started. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very hard for me to move on from that first chapter. I mean, you've been a debut novelist. You've spoken to so many. A lot of writers have told me, you know, with their first book, often there is a first chapter syndrome for debut novelists. Like you have one idea, you have one thing, and then you can't move beyond. And for me, it really was just a couple of years. And that's why I feel like I, I feel it. I know it. I think the first chapter is very polished. It's been worked on for so long. Uh, you know, and and then the rest of the book kind of happened after that. I think I always wanted to write a novel. Um, I didn't know if I could, uh, because I think women writers or just women artists struggle so much with this idea of permission, right? Uh, to give permission to yourself. Can you be a novelist? How dare you call yourself a novelist? You know, you're meant to do other things. So I think it took me some time to just accept that I could be a novelist and I could I could expand this and write it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. being a short story writer was just a much safer place to be in. And then, of course, if it's a short story, you have a finished product, like you say, and then you can hopefully go out into the world in it. Writing a novel is a much longer process. And and I don't know how many years you spent on your novel in total, but obviously you spent many years kind of polishing this first chapter and breaking in the kind of cardinal rule of, of writing, which is don't keep correcting and editing your first chapter, you know, because you might lose it in the end. But thankfully, your first chapter has stayed in the novel and it is such a beautiful introduction to Shashi's life and um, her kind of initial grieving process. I wondered whether you could speak a little bit more on a maybe a more practical level about both your uh, leading female characters, whether you did kind of a lot of work before you wrote making notes on them because they feel so real they have such fleshed out lives opinions motivations and thoughts or were these something that came to you during the writing process so chloe one thing that i did know was that the mother and daughter were very different people and um for me, um, the physical characteristics in the sense of how they looked or, you know, um, the shrillness of their voice and and things and the clothes they wore, those were not as important as um, their values and, and their, their kind of temperament and uh, what was important to them. Uh, what do they like to eat or drink in times of distress? Uh, what are the colors they like? I think all of that, just their, their moods, all of that was very important to me. Um, it was very important for me for Shashi and Tara to be a kind of diametrically opposite uh, because on the outside, um, Tara, especially the daughter, who's a very feisty, you know, she thinks of herself as a feminist, 25-year-old, thinks of herself as, as very special, as very different and as very unique, uh, not just from everybody else, but also from her mother. Um, uh, so... I wanted, you know, at the outset for them to appear different. But of course, through the course of the book, I kind of wanted them to realize, or at least for Tara to realize that maybe the problems that they face as women or uh, their struggles are, after all, not that different. Uh, so, you know, that was the the ultimate uh, goal. I love reading writer interviews, and I feel I learn a lot from hearing um, writers speak at festivals. And a writer that I really like, Akhil Sharma, who also blurbed the book, he had said in this New Yorker essay that uh, he used only two um, senses uh, to write his book, Family Life. And that's why it's a specific kind of read. He's only used the audio and the visual. So there is no sense of uh, smell, touch, or uh, taste in the book. And I found that so fascinating, you know, I've never dissected literature that way. So I kind of employed that. I thought one way to make these two characters really different, and that was very conscious early on, is for them to inhabit very different sensory worlds. So, you know, if you think about it now, for instance, Tara, who I think of as a more superficial person, you know, I mean, she's also young, vibrant out there in the world, more active and radical. Her her chapters are more um, 
audio visual and shashi who is a is a more subtle person uh, she's you know more nuanced uh, her chapters or her characters written with more of a uh, of of smell and uh, taste and the last chapter which is the only chapter when both the women meet and which is on the same and both the women meet in the same kind of uh, geographic and temporal terms in the last chapter all the senses are there and there's also a lot of touch so th- that was one way um, you know a kind of different way that i was employing and trying to flesh out the characters rather than just saying shashi is fair and tara is dark and you know shashi has wavy hair and tara has whatever curly hair like i think the physical characteristics were not as important but it was very important for me to to show them as as different women uh, on the outside but for them to ultimately realize that they are not that different after all yeah mm-hmm. I feel like I need to go back now and read through the novel and and pick out all the senses to see the difference. Um, it's such a subtle thing, like you say, but obviously a very deliberate choice by you to make their narrative so different. But um, it's obviously works in a very unconscious way as you read through the novel. Um, I wondered whether you could speak a little bit more about the themes that you decided to explore, particularly um, when we were speaking about the patriarchy and this idea of women pushing against their expectations of them and were you very conscious that you wanted to explore these themes when you started writing particularly this particular theme about women and expectations and the patriarchy was that something you were very focused on exploring when you started writing not so much uh, when I started like when I was on the first chapter and I think a novel is uh, so you know, a lovely quote by Jonathan Franzen, and I know you've read uh, me kind of speaking about him earlier, and I really like him as a novelist. And one of the things he said was, uh, no fiction, I mean, I'm I'm paraphrasing badly, but any fiction that isn't the writer's a terrifying journey into the unknown isn't worth writing for uh, uh, anything other than money. So I, I do feel that going into a novel length work, uh, especially, is the process of exploration, right? If if before starting out, I know say mystery writers or you know thriller writers kind of need to have a plot before they begin, otherwise it'll be haywire. But when you're writing a book of this nature, um, I think you have to let go and really explore what happens. And and Chloe, I didn't know that I was an angry person, or I didn't know that I had anger inside me. I've been very, you know, even my journalism jobs have been pretty mainstream. I've been a pretty like proper person, you know, proper woman, done everything by the rule book. And somehow in writing this book, I realized I had all this anger buried in me. And um and I kind of didn't, and, and and the book kind of progressively gets more radical and angry. And and mm. uh, I think I was growing with that. Um, I, I didn't know the turns that it would take. And I think my characters were getting more conscious and getting more illuminated as the book went forward, as was I. So, no, I didn't really have everything charted out. I, I did know that it was a book, you know, with these female figures centrally and uh, to be a woman in the world today uh, is to fight and face all uh, so much prejudice and uh, so much of societal expectation and 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 certain limitations so I knew those would come in but uh, not to the extent that they did I I really didn't know that they would uh, mm-hmm. one thing I was interested in uh, was um because there's this political group that also comes in, MSS, uh, that ostensibly wants to protect women, uh, you know, and under the guise of protecting women, they're actually limiting women's freedoms. And I wanted that to be uh, kind of like a parallel track in the book, because I wanted to show how domestic patriarchal systems mimic these right-wing political systems. You know, the fact that a patriarchal system in a nuclear family is actually just a, a, a tiny version of what's happening on a grand scale politically with uh, right-wing politics. So that was uh, important to me as a writer. Um, you cannot really distance yourself from what's happening around you and what's happening in India or just in Asia or maybe even the world actually I mean we know what's happening in Iran so uh, we are writers 
functioning and living in the world of today. And I think you really have to be blind or, or you know, mm. hibernating to not be affected. So I think all of that kind of played in. Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, there is this kind of political edge to the novel, which might seem unexpected because it is a very family-centered novel, very character-led, but we see this rise of this um, MSS group who are a political far-right group, um, which we see increasingly encroach on the novel. And throughout the novel, you've got kind of leaflets that they distribute where they say their policies of, of what they want they want to impose on women. Obviously, politics does creep into into writing, whether we, we do it with full knowledge of it or whether it just, like you say, this unknown anger that came out of you. Was it was it a surprise for you to have this kind of political plot line, this thread so prominent in your novel? Um, so I don't think of my novel as, as overtly political. Of course, you know, the personal is political. For me, the MSS track is yet another obstacle um, that the women are facing. Um, but I, I don't think, you know, that's the kind of overriding mm. uh, focus of the, no of the novel. Um, I just think it's a reflection of reality, uh, you know, for women today, for women in India today, uh, to be a single woman or to be a widow, to fight for your rights, uh, to be a woman making her own um, uh, even marital choices or sexual choices, choice of career, choice of education, all of that. There are so many things coming in the way. And I think this, this idea of vigilantism or this idea of political groups, it, 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 it's a reality. So I think it kind of fit in to the scope of the book. Uh, like you say, I was a bit, I was worried about playing with these multiple tracks, you know, and I was worried about how do I introduce MSS? How do I write about them without uh, distracting people from the narrative of this women? So I, I thought the leaflets were a good idea because uh, uh, they're kind of interspersed in the novel and it's happening parallelly. Um, so it's giving readers an idea, uh, you know, of this menace, this, this growing mm -hmm. articulation of the group, uh, while the story is still about the journey of the women. Uh, one way that I wanted to show that the MSS is, is getting more powerful or getting more articulated in its strategy is by showing a progression in the design of the leaflets. So, you know, the kind of first two are just lists mm. and then they get a logo and then it, then there is like free herbal tea and then there's an email address, you know. So I think that was a sense, that was a way to show that the group is also getting more powerful over time. Uh, mm. But um, the leaflets were employed. Uh, I was very excited about the leaflets. <laughs> so the le and I'm, I didn't know if the publishers, like either in India or even in UK, I, I didn't know if they would use them because I haven't seen the leaflets, you know, in yeah. in books. So I just thought, let me take a chance. But they were happy to use them, so I'm, I'm glad. But I was excited about them, just you know, so that it's a kind of sidetrack that doesn't really take away from your narrative. Uh, I saw something, I mean, I, I, I want to talk about the kind of birth of the leaflets was I was reading Rachel Kushner is a writer I really like, Mars Room. And mm. since that's kind of set in the California state prison, she doesn't have leaflets, but there's one point in the book where there's just a page of uh, what, what visitors can wear uh, to the prison. Uh, you know, you can't wear... Uh, uh, certain colors uh, that that overlap with the inmate colors and, and you can't wear uh, strapless t-shirts. There was a list and it just came out of the blue and then we proceed with the novel. So I really like that device and I think the leaflets were kind of influenced by that but then they they took a life of their own and you know, there were eight of them so yeah. Yeah I love when novels do kind of surprising things like that. It kind of it takes you out of the text, but in an interesting way, because you're suddenly confronted by something very different and it makes you go, oh, what, like, what is that? Um, and I really enjoy when novels do that. And like you said, it's it's interesting to see the progression of these leaflets from being almost just like a um, an advert that you would have pushed through the door to then very professional looking, uh, very persuasive um, propaganda from these from these groups. One thing I, I saw in an interview with you, you said, obviously, you've had a, a long career in journalism and fiction allows you to do things that journalism or nonfiction writing doesn't. Do you think touching again on perhaps this kind of 
uh, unleashing of your anger that came out in your writing? Do you think your fiction has allowed you through your characters to explore topics you haven't been able to touch on in your journalism? Yeah, that's a great question, Chloe. I, I, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, if you were a journalist and an editor, writing fiction must have been easy. And I'm sure the grass is always greener on the other side. But I truly believe like if you're a lawyer or, or, you know, I don't know, a potter, I think writing fiction is easier because then you're just doing something completely different. For me, there was so much of unlearning because I've been a journalist for 15 years. I've studied journalism. My entire, you know, brain is oriented towards, uh, you know, even as an editor, asking for details, asking for place and time and, you know, uh, facts mm -hmm. and uh, uh, going into a, a very kind of practical uh, uh, black and white areas uh, as as good journalism uh, should be. Um, and also being an editor for a while, I think, uh, you know, more than a journalist, uh, you're used to um, underlining everything, kind of asking for more details, fill this out, explain this. So it was a huge process of unlearning for me. And I think it's an ongoing process, you know, hopefully my, my next book and the third book, I'll be I'll get better at this, uh, that I think fiction is so much about uh, letting go in a sense and exploring. And it's about that gray space. It's not about the black and white of nonfiction. It's not about the black and white of journalism. I feel fiction is more about truth, whereas journalism is about fact. And I think if you're oriented to think a certain way of over explaining everything as I am, there is a sense of unlearning. Uh, the idea of, you know, uh, being more abstract, uh, saying less rather than more, uh, leaving certain things uh, to the imagination, knowing what to delete. This was all a learning process for me. And I think more than anything, I think um, inhabiting characters without judgment, because uh, even in, you know, in the kind of journalistic atmosphere we are experiencing now, opinion journalism, you know, there's an event and you commission an opinion piece or you're asked to write one, you immediately have to take sides. You have mm -hmm. to say this is wrong, this is right, this is what I believe in. And I don't think that can make for good fiction. Fiction can't be, you know, authors telling the reader, this is the fact and this is what I believe in. I think fiction should kind of create an atmosphere and, you know, lead readers by the hand to a place, but leave them there and, and trust readers and let them make up their own mind. Uh, so I think all of that was really interesting uh, for me. And I don't think being a journalist or an editor helped in any way. I think it was absolutely <laughs> detrimental to being a fiction writer. You know, I think you should really be like a wood carver or something else. <laughs> What about in terms of just uh, helping you in the the general routine? I mean, getting oh. a novel, getting a novel written is just a case of sitting down and getting the work done. What did that help? There it did help. That it really <laughs> did help because as kind of you know underpaid and overworked journalists today, we are used to slogging and and really uh, working long hours. So I think yeah, the discipline of just uh, knowing that you have to hit finish line because at some point you're also you know you, you come from a certain kind of friend circle every second person is writing a book right <laughs> everyone is writing a book and then after two years you don't hear about that book <laughs> like it, it's abandoned somewhere around the way so I think definitely the discipline of just sitting down and and finishing uh, did come from years and years of uh having to deliver on deadline and imposing deadlines on others. I, I think it helped. And, and I also feel, uh, Chloe, you know, in, in novel writing, I wrote it over five years. There are so many different phases, right? Like say the first two years are probably, you're just world building. It's kind of broad. You're just writing. Uh, I was kind of writing random scenes and passages, not necessarily chronologically. And then you get down to the meat of it and you kind of, plot the book and you know a beginning and end and then the last year or so you're actually editing moving things around so there are so many phases to novel writing it's not all just sitting and ruminating on your desk but that there is a year of that and it's not just all uh, editing for like 10 hours a day but there is a time for that so I think the discipline of journalism really helped me in the last stages 
of the book. I think I was, I mean, I must say I was really good with all my deadlines, even with reverting to my editors, you know, in India and the UK. And I think that came from just years and years of following a weekly deadline and knowing you just have to do it, mm. you know. Yeah, you have no choice when you have a deadline and and seems to be sometimes deadlines when you're writing a book can shift a little bit, but it's always nice to be that person that is on time with your work. <laughs> so what about the writing process in general then? Is there something for you that you find particularly challenging and you've had to kind of really work to overcome? Is there an aspect of it? I mean, are you a person that likes the kind of emptiness of a blank first page or you like the editing what what for you is the kind of the hardest part you know so I think the thing that we as writers what what you like reading uh the most uh, the kind of books you like or the uh, aspects of fiction that you like are the aspects of uh fiction that you would like also indulging in or writing and for me uh, you know the authors I like whether it's Zadie Smith, Akhil Sharma, uh, Siri Hasbit, uh, Franzen. Uh, they are all authors um, who really kind of inhabit this kind of psychological dimension of their characters. You know, their books aren't about heavy plot mm-hmm. and twists. Uh, it's really just about getting deeply inside a character's head and understanding their their feelings, uh, their, uh, their what what makes them passionate what, what, you know the kind of dark parts of their head uh, their their idiosyncrasies you know that part and that's what I enjoy in fiction also Kotzia desire you know when you're just really inside a character's head mm-hmm. I like that and I think those are the parts I like writing as well I like a kind of you know deep uh kind of you know, really like a lobotomy of of characters' heads, what they are thinking in private, private thoughts, interior monologues. Those are the parts I like. Uh, The parts that are hard for me and I dislike are actually, you know, while I don't know if you felt that when you were writing your book, but when you're younger and you think, I want to be a writer, you think writing is about pretty sentences and and you're good in language and grammar and you know you get a plus plus in English essay so you'll be good in writing a book but I realized in novel writing that it's an extremely left brain activity as well it's so mathematical you need to be so organized because you need to remember if if a character is meeting another character on you know on page 80 you need to have remembered to have them meet earlier if they are recalling a conversation like this like plotting, it's quite mm. mathematical, you know, in that sense. And that part was was harder for me just to plot kind of narrative and how things will unfold because I haven't formally studied, uh, I don't know if they teach this stuff in MFAs, but I haven't studied creative writing. I've studied journalism, I've studied style, but I haven't, you know, uh, studied uh, how to plot a novel. And of course, I did some basic, you know, I, I did some online workshops, I googled a bit, but I don't think that's a real education. So, so those parts, I think just the plotting and what will happen after what and what is more effective if it happens after this, that part was harder for me. And I, I think I will be struggling with that um, in the future as well till till I get better at it. But um, writers being on a journey sitting down and looking back looking forward I love that stuff that was enjoyable Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless ready to get 30 30 ready to get 30 ready to get 20 20 20 ready to get 20 20 ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees promo rate for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, 
fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah. I completely relate to you. Those the bits that you enjoy, the bits that I enjoy, the the kind of plotting side of it and trying to I don't know, get one character to go somewhere for a particular reason and all that kind of nitty gritty is not what I enjoy. I, I like writing a beautiful sentence. That is that is what I like doing. <laughs> so I wondered now whether you could tell us a little bit about your publication in India in 2021. And I wondered what the experience was like for you as a debut author. Was there anything that you found particularly challenging? And do you have any advice for anyone who is about to become a debut author? So, I mean, I was, of course, a COVID debut, you know, um, because the way publishing cycles work, the date was fixed so much in advance. You know, when COVID first broke out in 2020, I don't think anyone imagined it's going to be in the world for like 12 months, 14 months, you know, 18 months. So when HarperCollins India bought my book and they made the announcement in December uh, 2020, and then COVID happened, but they had already decided that it was, you know, it was on the schedule to be out in July 2021. And 2021, we see COVID is still around, but they couldn't just delay it. You know, there's so much. I mean, they have a roster. So I think I missed out on this, you know, experience of, you know, going to festivals in 2021 and having interviews in person. You know, I, I still I feel I haven't had a single interview, actually. I've had lots of interviews, but everything has been virtual phone or email, even in India. I always imagined, you know, somebody will come home to interview me and I'll make them tea. And then in the copy, they'll say, and then she flicked her hair and served <laughs> me with sugar. And, you know, none of that happened. I didn't get to serve anyone tea, you know. So I feel I missed out um, on, on a few things being a COVID author. It was very different for me in India because, you know, being in journalism and also being you know, kind of in feature journalism for a while, I, I've interviewed authors, I've commissioned, you know, reviews, I've been in the kind of books and art space. So I knew um, how it works, uh, but but still, I think nothing quite prepares you for it. Uh, but it was good. And uh, I think what I lost from not having physical events, I actually made up from a lot of really beautiful one-on-one -on -one connections. So I did a lot of book clubs that were virtual every, like I, I spoke to book clubs around the country online. A lot of the women mailed me later. Uh, we struck up real friendships, you know, after COVID kind of went mm -hmm. away, fingers crossed. I've met some of these women for coffee or drinks and uh, unknowingly, you know, for me, when I started, I, I didn't start out to write a book about grief, but because grief, ends up being such a vital part of the book and people were going through so much loss during COVID. Chloe, it was something completely unexpected, but people were writing these really emotional reader letters to me saying, I lost my father or I lost my mother, I lost a grandparent and your book really helped me cope. So suddenly I feel it became a book about grief that people were gifting each other. Completely unexpected, completely not something one can plan or know. So I think COVID in a way uh, did impact how people were uh, responding to the book, right? Also just dealing with loss and emerging from it. So I think uh, all of that. And then um, last year when things started opening up a bit, I did go to, you know, festivals. Uh, yeah, 2022, I kind of was a belated debut author. So I feel in a way my you know, my season of being a debut novelist has stretched over 24 <laughs> months. 
Uh, so maybe that's 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 a good kind of fallout from being a COVID uh, author. And do you think you had to kind of mentally prepare yourself for having your work? I mean, obviously you've had work out in the world when it comes to journalism, but perhaps having a novel out is a lot more intimate and makes you a more vulnerable person. Did you? How did you feel kind of in yourself when your book was out in the world? You feel naked. I mean, I feel, uh, you know, that I think reading an author's first novel is probably the closest you can get to reading like that teenage diary. Because first novels end up being, or even if they're not biographical, I think if your character shares certain social or biographical details with you in the sense that my characters are women, right? And uh, Tara could have been a younger version of me. She's not. And I I, I feel I read, I read a lot on this because I, I got really, I was not angry because I realized I have indulged in this as well. I have interviewed authors and said, is it based on your life? Like I have asked this question as a journalist. So I realized that it's, it's just human curiosity. Uh, so you can't be angry, but I was I was very interested in how women authors get asked if their books are biographical so much more than male authors. I don't know if you if you experienced this or noticed this, but I, I certainly thought that to be a case. So I think you, you know it, it's it's this it's compounded when uh, a you've you've made yourself vulnerable and put out your kind of deepest darkest thoughts out there. Uh, and then two, you think people are constantly wondering if this is an incident from your life because the character shares certain demographic details that are similar to you. Uh, but I realize people will think what they have to think and there's no point, you know, beyond uh, to to defend it. But but I did find it interesting and I've had conversations with a lot of female writers who who all think, you know, they've repeatedly been asked if their books are biographical. Touching back on your publication, one thing I really was fascinated to know was how did your UK book deal come about? Because obviously we're two years down the line from it being published in India. Did you have to have an agent in this country? Like how how did it how did it all work? You know, there has, I mean, I am lucky in the sense that there have been trailblazing writers before me. There's now been, uh, you know, a history of um, Indian writers based in India who've been published internationally, which is different from just writers who might be, uh, you know, of Indian heritage, but are completely American or completely British and published there, right? It, it's a very different thing to be an Indian writer in India and being published internationally, but it's happened. Um, and since it's happened uh, for some time, and of course, Arundhati Roy, who continues to live in India and in Delhi, was the kind of first big um, Indian writer to be published abroad. And she made uh, such a big uh, splash, you know, with the booker and all of that. So it's happened. And when I was thinking of, say, um, quitting or or deviating from an established career in journalism where I had a stable source of income, I had a job, I had everything to dive into fiction writing. Uh, I'll be honest at, at the cost of sounding arrogant, but I did have a certain ambition for my book. Uh, the way it works is, you know, it's not really a big book. Um, until it's published abroad like why would I not want my book to be read by more people does it uh, I mean I think India will always be my primary readership it will be uh, the readers who most closely interact and, and you know, love my book and give it the most creative nutrition but obviously if I was going to devote five or six years of my life to it I did want it to be published abroad but wanting is not the same as happening and I think I Again, the timing was really bad for me uh, with COVID. Uh, everybody told me um, you need an agent. So I knew I needed one. Um, I really wanted an international agent at the outset. In India to publish, like if I just had to publish my novel in India, I I didn't, I wouldn't have really needed an agent. I mean, I, I could have sent it to a few publishers and gotten published just like that. But I knew I wanted to publish abroad. So I was on the lookout for an agent. And I did, uh, uh, this was pre-COVID, but write to 
a lot of kind of the big international agencies. But at that point, I wasn't even really sure what the novel was. I had, you know, two chapters. I didn't know where it was going. And it was all kind of moving very slowly. And then COVID happened. And uh, COVID happened. I was looking for an agent after COVID happened, uh, right? Like kind of early 2020, when I've almost finished my book, people said, this is a good time to start looking. And it was a terrible time, you know, so I was unlucky. And so the agents I had written to abroad said, listen, uh, they read the first few chapters and they're like, listen, this is good. But I mean, this is such a bad market now because all publishers will have a backlog because things will be pushed and this is not a this is not a comment on your writing please don't lose heart but if there is a backlog and people are losing money they have to bank they have to go with bankable names so i, I you know it was not great it was not good for me i actually then decided to sign with an indian agent who was just who is somebody himali sodhi who's been in publishing for 25 years and was just starting her own agency and she was she was a champion of the book right from the start like she actually introduced me to some international agents when i told her i'm looking for an agent and then i just decided that look i've finished this book i can either just wait for 2 years uh with it or however long uh, this covid thing is going to plague us um or i can move ahead with my life so I think these are also decisions you take at the spur of the moment. So I told Himali, let's do it. So I was her first author. And I think there was actually a wonderful energy to that because we kind of bonded really well. Uh, she put all her energy into it and she uh, shopped it around in India. And uh, we got a really good deal, I think, in terms of the, I think she sent it to 10 publishers here and eight of them uh, pitched. Oh, wow. For the yeah, and the two that didn't were simply not pitching for any books at that time. And then out of the eight, uh, two of them had like a very low uh, uh, financial component. So we just left those out and then she wrote to the six for a second round. So I think it was it was quite exciting. I think there are so many ways to navigate this. So one way to navigate this would have been to not pitch at all to India and then directly just make it a global pitch. But I knew given my timing and circumstance that would have taken so long. And I was, I'd been with this book now for five years. I just wanted to, I wanted it to be out there, you know? So I think I made the choice that was right for me at the time. And then uh, once it was pitched by HarperCollins here, I'm like, okay, I mean, picked up by HarperCollins here. I'm like, okay, this part is done. Now let's look for an international agent because him, Ali was, was new to the scene and and she is also a friend who said look I can just be greedy and say I'll pitch internationally mm -hmm. but I don't know that scene so let me be your South Asia agent and you get a different international agent so that's how that round started and then David Godwin kind of very enthusiastically within you know of uh, 24 hours of me mailing him kind of called or I think emailed and said I want to sign you on let's do this so that was really exciting. And and Godwin, he is the person who took Arundhati Roy abroad. Uh, you know, he's kind of associated with having agented a lot of Indian writers um, internationally, not just Indian, South Asian. So Shehan, who won the booker this year as a Sri Lankan writer, and, and David is his agent, you know, and then Vikram Seth and um, Dipti Kapoor, whose age of ice is now like a huge kind of international success, is now with someone else. But originally, David was her agent. So he really seemed like kind of the right pick. And I got really lucky. But the timelines were so stretched out. I mean, <laughs> I feel you have to have so much faith. Like in India, the timelines are relatively shorter, Chloe. So, you know, so I think mid 2020 or or almost like late 2020 is when harper collins uh, said we are signing you on and then the book was out july 2021 but with david i think we he he took me on in march 2021 and then head of zs came on board a little later but they said 2023 we are going to publish you you know it, it just seems like 
wow, you know, the timelines are are very different. I, and I think in US, the timelines are kind of 24 months. It's, it's mm. even longer than the UK. So those are strange things to grapple with as an author, because you feel you've moved on and you feel maybe you've become a better author. You know? <laughs> maybe you've become a better writer, but people will be reading my writing from two years ago. So well, particularly when you've spent five years writing it, it feels like an even longer wait. I can imagine. I mean, I, I think I think it was about 18 months for me. So it, it, that felt like forever. But I can imagine for you, it's felt even longer. So I'm so thrilled that it's finally out in the UK. Before I ask you about what's next for you, I just have to ask you another question. And we've touched on it briefly already because I um, saw an amazing interview with you where you did something very brave and you interviewed Jonathan Franzen in 2015 and then when you were writing your novel and at the height of the COVID pandemic you thought okay I'm just going to email him and ask him (laughs) if he'll read my book which is the most gutsy brave move I think I've ever seen from a debut author so how important do you think being brave is when you are when you're kind of launching your work out into the world? Okay, I have like a really long answer to this. So, uh, because, um, so, so pardon me, but A, I just want to say that as a debut author, I also now just have great gratitude and respect for people who agree to blurb you. Mm. Because, you know, when you're already renowned, when you're already award winning, it's almost like, the person blurbing your book is also gaining from being associated with you, right, in a way. But when you're a rank newcomer, the people who just offer to read your manuscript without knowing at all how it's going to be, I mean, I I have such gratitude for them because I feel like I am not that busy. I'm not as busy as Jonathan Franzen, but I would also have second thoughts about reading a debut manuscript simply because we are just all so busy. You know, you need to make a living. You need to do your writing. There is a house to run, all of that, right? So um, I have great gratitude for people who offered to read. Um, I think during COVID, uh, COVID either made us really sink into despair (laughs) or just realize that, Carpe DM sees the moment you have nothing to lose. So I remember I sent, um, I had I had his email uh, because I had interviewed him when he was visiting Jaipur Literature Festival. I worked with Vogue India at the time and it was a really good interview. He was very gracious and we did a very fun photo shoot. And at the time he had told me, um, you know, that this was one of the best interviews he'd ever had. And I think it came from the fact that I was a big fan girl as I'd read all his books and every interview of his. And it, it was a good interview. Uh, I mean, I'm saying that myself. It was good. It was a Q&A. And so I had his email just because we had coordinated uh, the interview then. And I'm like, I'm sure he gets, you know, 300 emails a day. and But I have nothing to lose if I mail him. And at that point, I think it was the lowest, uh, it was the most terrifying scene in India. You know, New York Times had done a front page story of these kind of mass funeral pyres of just people like not even the families, not even having the bandwidth to like bury the dead. Like it was, it was a really bad time. I didn't know we would survive as humanity. I, I, you know, so I'm like, I have nothing to lose. And I remember my subject line was, uh, an end of the world request from India. <laughs> like, you know, as a journalist, I know headlines. I'm like, let's get like a grabbing headline, right? So it actually said, hello, and an end of the world request from India. And I'm like, I had interviewed you in Jaipur. And this is the link to the article, just to refresh your memory. And you had said it was a good interview. Look, I've written a book. And um, I don't know if you'll ever see this mail, but I would really love for you to uh, read it, blah, blah. And he actually replied within like two hours or something. He's very good with email. And he said, I remember the interview when I knew because I read all his interviews that he doesn't actually blurb books. So even the few books that have his blurbs are from other in other contexts that he might have mentioned the book in. So I knew that, but I kind of still requested saying, would you make an exception? Because look, I'm in India and like people are dying and I might die. Like I kind of really pulled an emotional card. And then I also said, look, I can't even mail you the book because courier services were were out. So here's a PDF and I know it's terrible to read a PDF. And he had his own book coming out, you know, a few months after that. And being Jonathan Franzen, I think he was inundated with so much advanced publicity. But he just, he he said, thank you. And 
I promise to read it, but I don't know when. And, and that I, I'm not going to give you a blurb, but I'm going to read it. And I think over the next maybe almost seven or eight months, I sent him uh, slightly desperate but cute <laughs> reminders, you know, with like a rec movie recommendation or a book recommend, you know, things like that. Then I read his book and gave him my personal review. I, I did these, but he was busy. But he did actually finally read it and, and sent me an email review. And to me, um, so, you know, of course, my publishers here were like, listen, can you please ask him again if we can excerpt mm -hmm. it, like, please. And I'm like, I can't, you know, because, and for me, this is more precious than, than anything. Like, one of my favorite novelists actually giving me a private review and telling me that he liked the book, like, that was more important to me than a blurb, uh, you know, for, for readers. So I think that gave me a lot of confidence and, and uh, also to go on write my next book and you know all of that so I think it's I'm really grateful and I hope to be the kind of author one day that will read manuscripts from somebody who just writes to me because it can really make such a difference to that person's kind of entire writing journey right like I feel I gained an immense confidence uh, uh, it was a huge boost at a time when things were so despairing you know so mm. I'm really grateful and it was it was good fun yeah yeah it's such a wonderful story finally I want to ask about what's next for you and can you let us know if you're working on anything new at the moment so Chloe I did a brave and maybe foolish uh, thing of deciding that I want to be a full-time novelist you know? <laughs> so when my book was uh, going to be out like a few months before when I still had a lot of edits to do after HarperCollins announced it, I'm like, this is what I want to do. This is my calling. So I quit a really uh, kind of thriving and established job in journalism on, on a whim and uh, decided that I want to write books full time. <laughs> um, and I think I haven't written much since because now there's this intense pressure to be, you know, uh, earlier, you know, the journalism job was what I did for work. And this was something I did for myself. And when I quit the job, writing became the job. So it's been quite hard, actually. So, but I'm, I'm kind of trying to find a balance. I'm doing, you know, some consulting on the side and I am uh, making notes uh, for the second book, it's, uh, the second novel. I know it's set in Bombay. I also know it's about an artist. Uh, so I'm, I'm doing, I'm reading a lot of um, novels. I think uh, for the first book, a lot of my research was, you know, I was reading philosophy and Sanskrit poetry because those were the interests of my characters. And um, I feel I want to read more fiction this time. I feel I don't want to do a kind of factual research mm -hmm. as much. I want to uh, orient my kind of mind and my pacing in a different way. So it's actually a wonderful time of, of reading and not, not thinking I'm procrastinating because I believe I'm reading for my next book. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what's up. And I, I won't lie. I mean, there is some amount of anxiety about this, this UK release. So I've also told myself, you know, February, once this book is out, I'm going to kind of really get down to writing. So yeah, so it's in it's kind of in that space. But but I've, I've like this is a path that I am on now. I've chosen this. Nothing makes me happier. I mean, I really don't think there's been anything that's been a happier event for me than sending my first book out to the world. Uh, I, I don't know if that makes me a strange kind of person, but it's been the happiest a most fulfilling event of my life and I and I I want to choose to do that again and again and uh, everyone's told me that you know the first book is always special and there's a magic of a debut novel since your podcast is called that that you cannot recreate later but I think what you can't recreate maybe uh, we can do other things with right like maybe maybe I'll feel better about how my second book is because with the first book, you always, again, still think I could have done this differently. Mm -hmm. I work more on this. So maybe I'll feel happier about my craft and uh, my how authentic it is or how truthful I was able to be with the second, third and fourth novel. But I know that's what I want to do. And I think just being able to 
say that and just knowing that is is a wonderful feeling that this is what I want to do yeah well however you feel about book two I'm very excited to read it thank you so much Linda Tell for joining me on the podcast today Thank you, Chloe. Your questions were wonderful. And I think it's really a special feeling to speak to another novelist. You know, it's different. I mean, it's it's great to speak to journalists, but I think there are certain questions in a writer's journey or, you know, certain, say, a, a certain kind of anxiety or doubt or, or questions that only other writers understand. So I think it was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Aninda Tagosh talking about her contemporary novel, The Illuminated, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.